Hey everyone, before we get into today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Coinbase Prime and Ledger. Love these companies, genuinely proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them later from me, but now on with the program. Every person who runs money on this planet realizes they have to get off zero. They realize that now. And if you're looking for a super cycle, go to Bitcoin. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Mike McGlone over at Bloomberg. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good, Mike. Hello, and uh, thanks for having me. It's good meeting you at Bretton Woods in uh, New Hampshire in August. Yeah, it was great to see you. All right. I want to start uh, with your thoughts on the uh, the Bitcoin ETF. So just to set everyone's expectations, we're recording this on October 25th, uh, right? So this is a Monday. Um, we've got two uh, futures-based uh, ETFs trading as of now. We've got BitO, B-I-T-O, which is the ProShares offering. Uh, and then we've also got BTF, which is Valkyrie's uh, VanX, I think is set to trade tomorrow. Um, so, you know, I read your recent note uh, just on the launch of the futures-based ETF in general. And, you know, one of the lines that stood out to me is you think Bitcoin is set to trade like gold. Uh, and one of the key points that you made was that you expect volatility to dampen uh, moving forward. So, can you just uh, explain to us when you say, what do you mean exactly when you say Bitcoin is set to trade like gold and why do you expect volatility to dampen as a result of these ETFs launching? Looking forward, we're adding massive depth and participation to the space. And I look at it as an ex over the counter option trader in US Treasuries when there was no VIG, there's no bid and offer spread to make money. And, and, and cryptos are just so wide. And I can give you a few of those examples from the macro. In addition, volatility was already on the way down, and it makes sense relative to things like gold. So when um, there's certain ways to look at volatility, to me, it's all relative. So the best, best way to look at Bitcoin volatility is relative to gold, not just on an outright basis. So 260-day volatility, apples to apples, when the first uh, futures were launched in December 2017, Bitcoin volatility is about eight to nine times that of gold. Now it's about four. That's a measure of the past 260 days. It's clearly heading lower. It has that momentum of heading lower. And now we're just throwing massive depth into it. So look at what just happened with this ETF. You just ETF. You just allowed firms like, we'll just give one example, swap providers like Goldman Sachs to provide a swap mm -hmm. on this, to sell forward, to sell the futures, hedge the underline any way they want. They'll figure it out and just compress those spreads. And I look at things like, uh, to me, what stuck out to me when this came out is this is just the beginning of onboarding to your average retail investor, the um, legitimization of the entire space to the pension funds, endowments, and family offices, and treasuries to get in this space. And I look over, I see GBTC, you know, the Grayscale Bitcoin, Bitcoin Trust at 20% discount before this, mm -hmm. the week of the announcement. And that discount is getting crushed and it should get um, squashed away because it's on its path. And I'm saying the clear trajectory for GBTC is to become the dominant ETF in this space and surpass in commodities and surpass GLD. It's just, that's the trend mm. if we continue in this path. So what I see is the big boys coming in, squashing volatility. And I, I love that narrative that people said, oh, they're going to just buy the futures and white out the spreads. I'm like, yeah, I wish it worked that way. And glad it doesn't because this is just the animal instinct of there's a quote from a guy named John Lishio, you, which you might not know, but per, per people like Mark, Lish, Mark uh, Yusko would know, a lot of senior people would know. And I'll explain who he is in a little bit. He used to call pit traders, of which I was a pit trader, dope sniffing dogs. And that's what the market is. Dope sniffing dogs. When they can do an arbitrage and make almost very low risk money by simply arbitrage and arbitrage, arbitraging and hedging their Greeks, they're going to do that. And that's what um, this ETF launched. And it's just the snowballing effect. 
So one common narrative that you hear, and maybe it supports uh, exactly what you were just saying there, which is, uh, you know, for the vast majority of Bitcoin's life, there's kind of believers and retail folks and grassroots folks who actually believed in the cause kind of got in. Uh, but, you know, one a narrative that's floated around is that, well, you know, this arbitrage kind of presents a bit of a Trojan horse for institutions, right? Whereas uh, large institutions, maybe it's trading desks, maybe it's large hedge funds, etc. They don't really need to uh, believe in or even fully understand what's going on with Bitcoin. They just see an arbitrage opportunity, right? But that actually, uh, depending on the mechanics of how they execute it, does, uh, kind of requires them to get exposure to the underlying, right? The spot. Yeah. Uh, and that almost is, is, that's kind of the first exposure they have, but then the theories are going to get more comfortable with it. Oh, yeah. The mechanics are, hey, this actually is quite interesting. Do you subscribe to that that whole theory? Check mark completely. When people ask me about, <laughs> oh, completely, like, but it's the way it is. It's when it's. I mean, I first heard about it almost ten years ago, and my eldest son, who's now twenty-seven, told me about it. My first impression: oh, silly internet money. And then you dig in, and you know that we're all in the spaces. Any educated, curious, humble professional who digs in and wants to learn, learn every single day. Everything you learn about this is like, wow, this is revolutionary. Now, I've gone, I've gone over the rabbit hole. I mean, I was very bearish in 2018, most notably because I picked out a bubble. But then I saw the bubble burst. It went, came down to a good level, back to building. And to me, that's what happens. So when I'm, people ask me about getting a Bitcoin, I say, just buy $100. Just figure out where you can, something mm. that doesn't matter, and then you'll learn. And don't, don't care if it goes to 50. I mean, okay, so it's an expensive meal. But got to get in. You got to understand. You can, the, to me, the greater risk that's happening global, macro, from a money manager standpoint, is every person who runs money on this planet realizes their greater risk is, not being, is getting off zero. They have to get off zero. They realize that now. And to me, it's just the beginning of that. And this is just part of it. And futures-based ETFs, meh, not the best way to go. But it's part of that path. To me, the end game here, and I'll kind of go to my conclusions, and this is something we started talking about four years ago, is the end game for the market and for the SEC, if they're truly concerned about investor um, protection, is to get into an ETF that tracks an index, a crypto index. Proper index, obviously Bloomberg has indices. Um, that, to me, is a proper way. Right now, they're in that dicey game of picking winners. There's going to be an ETF Ethereum very soon in futures. It's a matter of time. There's going to be actual uh, physical ETFs in Bitcoin and Ethereum. But my thought is, if you're the SEC, you see what's happening in the rest of the world, it's working in Canada, it's working in, in Europe, the monies are flowing out of this country, the pressure's overwhelming, and they're looking like they're picking winners, whereas if you're the SEC, your end game should be get to, if this is for institutions, you're protecting investors, prove an ETF that tracks an index. So that way you're not picking winners, you're just proving an index that tracks the space. You know, when you look at the regulatory apparatus and why ultimately we got a futures-based Bitcoin ETF instead of a spot ETF, which many participants agree would be probably a better structure uh, for investors because it protects you from those roll costs, you know, the whole regulatory apparatus is set to regulate a limited number of um, permissioned participants, right, to use the lingo of crypto, uh, right? They regulate banks, they regulate asset managers, everyone, their reporting duties, right, uh, for all of those entities. If you look at the very nature of crypto as being something that's global, permissionless, our regulatory agencies, those are just two challenges. They are not set up in their current form to, uh, uh, that's not a task that they're, that they're designed uh, to do. Um and, you know, you kind of hear from the financial media apparatus that, hey, we're not going to get a spot Bitcoin ETF until Bitcoin starts operating within the parameters of, um, you know, regulatory bodies in the U.S. And, you know, those who understand Bitcoin, it's like that's even if it wanted to, which it doesn't, that's just not really possible. So what's your thought on kind of the push pull of uh, the way the regulatory apparatus exists today 
versus how crypto's laid out? How do we ever meet in the middle? You're a smart guy. You dug in some trees. I look at the forest and I look at this is working in other countries. There's massive demand. There's funds leaving this country, i.e., Kathy Wood said she's going to Canada, Canada ETFs. There's pressure from people like Abigail Johnson at Fidelity. The SEC, the U.S. regulators are getting, and they just got one of the most unique examples in history of why cryptos have to succeed in this country, and that's China banned them and pushed back. So here's the narrative. Mm. This is something I never even predicted this year, never even guessed, I mean, never thought about. But just imagine the narrative of you're the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, which has been around for 100 years, knock the wood, and what happens after 100 years. And you've got 1.4 billion people starting to get Great, gain animosity every day. You're keeping away from the world's best performing asset, not allowing them to become part of the rest of the world, not allowing them to diversify their capital, have free flow of capital, and all that stuff. That is a new world order that the world, the U.S. in is just completely going to accept and say, okay, thanks. Cryptos are going to work. We're going to make it happen. That's something I was surprised by. But how they get there, I'll let you figure it out. But I'm almost certain the end game is the U.S. will embrace cryptos embrace ETFs that tra- and, and they're starting look can we just launch a futures base it's a baby step to get there but they're it's this really rapidly advancing technology and just look at the difference in the world China's completely banned it and this bastion of free market capitalism just approved the first ETF yes we're doing what what uh, Churchill said we'll find the, the right uh, solution after we ex- after we exhaust all alternatives exhaust all the other yeah right. but we're getting there and the key things I remember is the most widely traded crypto assets on the planet are crypto dollars I mean Tether's just one there's a dozen wannabes the US gets that this is strengthening the US this is helping pushback against China. I mean, I, I was really impressed the other day. Now, this is going to be by the time we, this hits the tape, a couple of weeks. But when um, President Biden said the U.S. would defend Taiwan, I mean, this is part of that. I mean, but we can do it virtually in this digital Cold War. And that's what I think is kicking in. To me, that's the tap on the shoulder trade. That's um, the U.S. is not going to mess up. And of course, I'm an optimist. I've always kind of thought that crypto is much more compatible with the U.S., our values and our yeah. business model as a country, if you want to call it that, uh, than China, right? China, uh, they're a command and control economy. They're a command and control political uh, structure. Uh, they don't allow free flow of capital. They don't particularly like <laughs> a lot of free flowing ideas either. The U.S., uh, if I had to summarize our business model as, a, as an empire, we uh, try to foster innovation and then we make sure that we take a cut of it. Crypto seems to fit in that pretty nicely. In a lot of ways, you can see it being very compatible with like the underlying ideology. Uh, the ideologies are compatible. On the other hand, there is a separate set of incentives going on, which is we have this very powerful tool uh, called being the issuer of the reserve currency. Uh, and that's actually controlled by a very small subset, but a very powerful folks, uh, political folks in Washington, they've kind of very different set of incentives. So I guess one thing I sometimes worry about, not a lot, but uh, I do think it's a possibility um, that they might underweight uh, the potential benefit of crypto uh, and askew that for the power, the political power of uh, maintaining control of the reserve currency. I don't know if you think about that oh, yeah. Um, at all. Yeah. yeah. I'm not worried about it at all. And partly I make it my duty to make sure the proper well-researched information gets out there via the Bloomberg terminal. That's what I love about what I do here. I mean, I've been around for a while. I've never been in a place where I can be completely free to express my views as long as they're with, in, they're not without pressure from any senior person at the firm. And I've made it clear, pointed out, is crypto dollars are gaining dominance globally because of Bitcoin, because of Ethereum tokens, and because of um, digitalization of assets. Crypto dollars are the number one winner. 
global reserve currency is winning. It's crushing China. That's why they have to do the CBDC. So consider this. Their portion of GDP, of global GDP, has been increasing, but the dollar's dominance is also increasing. Imagine that. And they have to pay for all their commodities in dollars. I'd be kind of upset. Yeah, so they have to try to CBDC. I can see how this is pushing them against the wall, and they just made one of the greatest mistakes, I think, in history. And then you look at what's happening. The U.S. leaders are just figuring out, just like us, Open discourse. I was really impressed. Yes, they had this issue where they tried to tax cryptos back when we were going through the debate back earlier in the year. But that is wonderful that they realized one thing about it is there's revenue, there's jobs, it's a massive job creation machine, there's votes, and now it's pushbacks against China. So all they have to do is our leaders is figure it out like Ted Cruz has, a lot of them hasn't. And many others, I was just impressed with some of his speeches. And as our, as our anchor Tom Keene, when he hears about Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, he calls, their, calls them the People's Republic of Massachusetts. They're figuring it out. But it comes to votes. And this is, to me, what's happening. And we did approve the ETF. It's a matter of time that the U.S. is, oh, wow. China just threw themselves on, the, on their back in the wrestling um, um, uh, comparison and said, pin me. And the U.S. just has to do one simple thing to pin them, and that's uh, embrace cryptos. It's going to happen. And if it doesn't, blame me. Because I, I, mean, I just fully expect this is the way it works. And I can feel the sense, the tap on the shoulder. And I sense the, our leaders going in the rabbit hole. And Gensler has been pushing back, but give him credit. He did approve this futures-based ETF, which we um, predicted a year ago. It was not profound at all. That's the business I came from. I used to run the commodity business at S&P. All the commodity ETFs are based on futures, and you had to approve it because of the fact that the volume was sufficient. Um, Bitcoin is regulated under CFTC. Uh, it's a future, and um, you got to approve that ETF. Next is the key thing now. That's the baby step. That's the key thing. How they figure it out, you probably do that better than me, but I know the end game is they got to get to an ETF that tracks an index, um, and maybe it's going to happen next year. That's the proper way if you're the SEC and you're protecting investors to get there, and guess if this pushes back on China. It's almost an epic tale we're going to tell our grandkids. And do you want to be on the wrong side of that trade? I'd rather, I'd rather, here's like that, I like to end it. When you sense history coming, do you want to be Alexander Hamilton or do you want to be Aaron Burr? And I think our leaders are going to be more hmm. like anybody Alexander Hamilton. They don't want to be the guy who, who killed um, the uh, person who you know, founded our modern financial system. I want to get your thoughts on an Ethereum uh, ETF. So I read your note uh, this morning. Again, this is October 25th. Yeah. Um, and man, I, you know, you, it's almost like you read my mind because I, you know, I, was, I kind of try to think about what's going to come ahead. And uh, you know, we've got our futures-based Bitcoin ETF. It seems only a matter of time until we get an Ethereum-based one as well. Um, so I guess let's just start with your, with your high-level thoughts. Like, do you think um, an Ethereum-based ETF is or, uh, in our future uh, at some point soon? Matter of time. Um, clearly, by simplistically watching the trajectory in futures volume and open interest, clearly from the lower, the lower left to the upper right. Um, mm. So time stamping right now, we're October 25th. I'm doing it. I'm measuring the value of Bitcoin from the, the Friday before the ETF was launched relative to Ethereum and relative to GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. So right now, mm. Bitcoin's unchanged, and Ethereum and the GBTC are both up 8%. I expect that to continue. I don't expect Bitcoin to go down, but markets are about looking forward to dangling carrots of bullishness. And I see plenty in Bitcoin and Ethereum. There will be an ETF on um, Ethereum with futures. It's just a matter of time. And sometimes lawyers come up with really good lawyers, lawyers, lawyers speak and regulators, but this is an overwhelming 
tsunami now. And um, I, I fully expect it to happen. So it might come with futures, but to me the key thing is they got to get to the end game as soon as possible as an ETF that tracks an index. Because they're picking winners. I mean, what if Ethereum is, um, right. you know, some of the killers win, Cardano or Solana? What if they, they, who knows? I don't know. I fully am bullish Ethereum for being the, becoming the money of the internet. And it's how you denominate NFTs and all of that stuff. And I'm very bullish Bitcoin because it's becoming the collateral of the world, digital in a world going digital. But that could change. An index that tracks a proper, a properly tracks indexes, an ETF that tracks this is where the SEC should be going. I think they get that. And um, to get there, you got to improve an Ethereum futures ETF. And then maybe they'll skip above, skip past physical Bitcoin ETF and Ethereum ETFs, and maybe go straight to an ETF that tracks an index of a bunch of cryptos. To me, that would yep. be ideal. That's the best way to serve investors, to protect investors. Check if that's what their true purpose is rather than just saying it. Yeah, you had a couple of really interesting notes, uh, actually, in um, or, or things I wanted to dig into here, actually, in your note. Uh, one particular line that kind of caught my eye, you said Ethereum looks like a similar threat to old guard finance as Bitcoin is to gold. Can you explain exactly what you mean by that? It's re revolutionizing the whole world of finance. So this concept of being able to transact dollars, 27, 24-7, instant settlement, um, virtually zero cost and earn interest, crypto dollars, earn interest on a uh, token, on a blockchain, um, is revolutionizing finance. The world's going there, and it's been um, allowed because of Ethereum, because of Ethereum tokens. So, you know, you just got to respect. I don't, I mean, people realize from the, my conversations, I don't understand the technology so, so much. I'm a markets guy, and I see demand and adoption for Ethereum. And I see some sure. competitors, but this is one thing I got wrong about a, a year ago. I almost two years ago, I wasn't as bullish Ethereum, and I I did a podcast with you probably know Laura Shin, but like within minutes I had completed mm -hmm. that. It was like Ethereum just took off, and I started understanding. But to me, it's one of those things that um, you respect success and respect demand. And I hear, and then what happened with the EIP one five five nine protocol change? I was shocked. If you look at that supply, it was running. It was clearly heading lower, running around four percent annual for year. Now it's half that because they're burning tokens. So it's a classic example that they're just piggybacking off of um, the set code of, of, of Bitcoin, which is NGU technology. I love that term because the Bloomberg editors wouldn't let me use a no number go up. <laughs> you, you can tell by the time of this conversation, I'm from the south side of Chicago. We, we watch the bears, not the bears. Um, but um, it's they've really grasped onto the NGU, te NGU technology, number go up by burning coins. And... So for me, as a commodity strategist, supply going down, demand going up, adoption, price must go higher. Question of how you, how you measure that price overbought or over, oversold. Yeah, it's just it's hard not to look at that and get pretty excited about it. Like some of the use cases that have really caught people's imagination are, uh, you know, an entirely new financial system. Um, there's NFTs, so there's art and creative, there's games, all this stuff. But it's just really hard not to look at the total addressable market there and get pretty excited my question for you uh, is what do you see as being institutional demand for ETH? Because sometimes when I explain DeFi to, I've been talking about Bitcoin for years and years and years, and people either get it or they don't get it. Right? It's kind of like gold, actually, in that regard. Um, but people seem to really get DeFi much quicker, especially a lot of the institutions that I talk to are like hedge funds, because uh, they're like, oh, this is that. Curious, like, have you had the same experience in trying to translate what's going on here? And how do you see institutional demand for ETH versus something like Bitcoin? Well, I, the way I like to describe it is you can't hold gold anymore without Bitcoin. And now I look at it as you can't hold gold 
bonds without Bitcoin, you got to have some ETH in that space. Um, mm. It just so here's part of me. First of all, I think you made me think about it now because institutions, I get it because they they're all in finance. They see what's happening in their space and with DeFi. And all of us who've gone and been around for the last few years saw what happened to Blockbuster, saw what happened to Kodak, who did invent the digital camera. I mean, so much. And and it's well orchestrated. Recent history, people get what's happening with digitalization. They've learned the lessons about not adopting and falling behind. So to me, that's what's happening in ETH. But it's part of it where I I focus a little bit more on the trees on the force and, and stay away from the trees. And this is part of the reason I say is a properly managed index or ETF that tracks an index will be the better fit for the vast majority of institutions on the planet, pension funds, endowments, and sovereign wealth funds, family offices, you name it, to track an index like the S&P 500. Now, otherwise, they're picking stocks. To try to pick ETH or Solana or EOS three years ago is like, you know, EOS was going to be the ETH killer. Mm. Look what happened. There's so mm. many of them. So that's where I focus on the index. That's where I see where it's going. And I'm not smart enough to pick out the winners. There's other people who can play that game. And to me, that's where I think our regulators are going to get it and see this is the best way. And I think most institutions, okay, Bitcoin makes sense because it's digital collateral. It's great port, great complement for bond portfolios. And you're not going to buy gold anymore. You why? I mean, you can't buy gold without adding some Bitcoin. So I'll add some Bitcoin to my portfolio. Your greater risk is not to. You got to add some ETH. So then what trickles down from there? Best thing is an index. And to me, that's why um, That's why we actually, it was BI, Bloomberg Intelligence, who suggested the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index back in 2017. And you know, I didn't expect it to be here, but now it looks makes a lot more sense. This is where this space mm. is going. So those are just two. Yeah, they're the most significant. Um, Bitcoin ETH, and then look at you know coin market cap. There's plenty of them that keep inching up, um, and you just want to be careful with things like Shiba Inu and, and Dogecoin and stuff sure like do. that. Sure do, sure do. You know, any index provider is going to have their work cut out for them in this space because it is just so fast moving. This is in the S and P 500, right? When it's like, hey, you get to this size, uh, you know, X Y Z criteria, then boom, you're in the S and P 500. Uh, there are whole sectors. Uh, that exist in this space that didn't exist nine months ago, and they're yeah. significant, yeah. and they're growing, and it's what everyone wants exposure to. So, yeah. I don't know how you do that as a, as an index provider, or you just gotta have like a huge team working on it. I mean, maybe you guys at Bloomberg are cooking something up, and uh, you're just not telling me. But uh, you know, oh, well, I, they're, they're I, definitely I, cooking. See, it's the key thing. I'm in Bloomberg Intelligence, and I'm a strategist. Mm. Is what I love here. I just write what I think. I get edited to check my English and then make sure it's not something politically incorrect or something stupid that I don't do. I've learned mm. that lesson the hard way. And then there's an index team, so I will trickle up to index teams. I've made suggestions to them, and I think the next big thing we will be talking about within the next five years are you know how we have euro dollars? We will have crypto dollars, and I want to launch a, agree with a that. crypto dollar index. So this concept of being able to earn interest in this space outside the actual U.S. dollar banking system, which is a bit above what you get in Fed funds. That's what euro dollars are. They're deposits in Europe that started um, dollars that started after well, uh, World War II, most notably because the Soviet Union needed a place to put some of their money. It's happening in crypto dollars. And to me, that's just a matter of time. I want to make sure we create the proper index. Um, and that's our indexing team. There's probably much more I should say about it. But from a Bloomberg intelligence guy, that's what my job is to show, hey, index guy, this is what we should do. And whether mm -hmm. you grab onto it or not, because this is where I think it's going. And you don't have to believe me or not, but 
I, I can't see that stopping. And I think the U.S. is smart enough to embrace it, crypto dollars, and then the whole thing trickles down there from there, Mike. I mean, I just, you know, we're dominating the world organically. 95% of all stable coins went to the dollar. Why? I well, know. Where is she going to go? Know. Yeah, I just look, mm -hmm. it's one of the best indicators of organic free market capitalism ever. And China is just like, oh my gosh, we are really falling behind. Yeah. I am. Um, you know, who's written uh, pretty extensively about this is Nick Carter uh, yeah. over at uh, Castle Island. Oh, yeah. I think he might have coined the term crypto dollars. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think dollarization is actually really beneficial uh, for the U.S. And, uh, you know, I, I know there's a lot of you know questions about Tether, et cetera. Uh, I, you know, you know, Bill Maher, have you ever seen Bill Maher? New rules, new rule. Uh, if you're worried about Tether, then you have to be worried about the euro dollar system, et cetera. I think there's a lot of comparisons to be made there. But if you're worried about how Tether is capitalized, then you got to take a deep look at the euro dollar system and just the commercial banking system in general and the amount of leverage that gets applied there. Um, but overall, I think, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, I don't know if you caught this recent interview that he did uh, with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. My God, that guy just has an unbelievable gift to explain really complicated yeah. things in like their simplest ways. He came on a webinar we did about a year ago. You know, we were talking about why are there these yields uh, in crypto? Why, how can you get 10% yields uh, or 20% yields on your money? And he said there's a whole structural bet in crypto. Everyone is structurally long in crypto. That was his core thesis. And I didn't really fully understand that um, for a while. But, you know, he on this recent episode that he did with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, you know, the, the funding rates or the amount of interest you can get on lending out Bitcoin to go short Bitcoin is about 1%. The amount uh, that you can get lending out uh, uh, crypto dollars, right, stable coins to go long is 10%. And the reason there is just supply and demand, right? The market sets those rates. People want to borrow dollars so yeah. that they could go long more than they want to borrow Bitcoin so they can go short because that's what they think the market is going to move. They're just sec lending. They're borrowing lending, and that's what they're doing. And Celsius was the first, obviously very controversial, but I, I'm glad you mentioned I won't go too far. I'll let you finish. But the key thing about Tether, it's just remember this. It's only one. There's a dozen wannabes, and it's all because it's a better way to transact. I got one more markets-related question for you before I want to move on sure. to commodities because I know you read yeah. about that as well. Um, something I've you know, having watched like a whole bunch of different uh, crypto market cycles at this point, uh, some there's a pattern that people are pretty used to at this point, right? Which is uh, first Bitcoin moves. That's the first mover, right? Then people rotate into ETH. And then finally, they rotate into alts, right? And this is a pretty well-observed pattern over periods of time. If you go back and look at 2020, you know, after the you know, the huge dip of COVID in, in March, uh, Bitcoin kind of very steadily moved up. And Bitcoin led the pack uh, for the vast majority of last year until I think like February this year before people finally started to rotate into ETH in a big way uh, and then finally into alts and NFTs and like some of the craziness that went on around like Doge and that kind of stuff. Um, but that's a pretty well-worn pattern. Uh, now, you know, Bitcoin kind of started to bounce off of its, you know, that $40,000 uh, trading pattern that it had been in for a long time, uh, you know, cleared all-time highs in the span of about three weeks. Uh, it led the market for about three of those weeks, and now it looks like ETH is already on its way to catching up. And I guess the pattern that I, I'm noticing, uh, I'm not a markets guy, but I'd be curious to get your take, is if that whole rotation into higher risk assets within crypto is actually accelerating, right? So like the time that it takes to, for people to rotate from Bitcoin into ETH and then altcoins that, that length is actually shortening uh, drastically. I wonder if you notice a similar pattern or if there's anything to pay attention to there, or if this is just me reading way too into patterns that <laughs> don't necessarily matter or exist. Well, for me, it's digging into the trees more than I want to. I'm bullish crypto, I'm bullish Bitcoin, Ethereum, and an index that properly tracks the market. 
and I've learned my lesson. I used to have hair of trying to figure out too much. I think the key thing to think about what's really happening this year is what happened when we launched this ETF at, uh, you know, it was basically uh, October 18th. And the ETF that week of October 17th, beginning mm -hmm. that Monday, was what's happened since then is, is Ethereum's outperformed Bitcoin and GBTC has outperformed Bitcoin. They're just catching up. And I think what's happening is there's massive speculation in this space. Dogecoin is an example that it will have um, meet speed bumps. There will be flushes. Expect speculators to get their faces ripped off. Sorry, here's my sympathy for speculators. If you're over leveraged long and it's too much money, I'm from the trading pit. 20 to 1 leverage was standard normal in futures. And I've seen guys lose their jobs, get divorced, and commit suicide. But sorry, you took too much risk. It's always, and, and that's mm -hmm. just going to happen. Um, the unique thing that's happening, though, is for institutions, they will ignore this noise and they will focus on what really matters. Low correlations to the market, better performance, enhance my total performance of my portfolio, reduce my risk. That will happen with Bitcoin and Ethereum mix, and it happens much better with an index that tracks maybe a top 10, depending on how it's managed. That's where we're going Everything else is for speculators. Now, Solana, sure, okay, maybe it's better than ETH. It's, you know, better transactions. It does NFTs. Cardano does. doesn't. But that's a game that you're going to play with the pickers. Indexes is where it's going. So to me, I look at it like fully expect at some point this ability to, you know, we're at 13,000 total on coinmarketcap.com. I mean, that's just ease of entry, too much supply. You know the rules of <laughs> economics. Mm -hmm. Prices will not go up much longer. The unique thing about cryptos, they don't really go below zero. It's not like a stock. It goes out of business. So I look at it as um, yeah. institutions, which is my focus, is let the, uh, let the traders beat themselves up. Institutions will focus on the bigger picture Low correlation, enhanced returns, include, include, improve your sharp ratio, which means an index. So right now, that's Bitcoin and Ethereum and maybe some of the other ones, but they're going to be very careful um, having to explain to a board of directors why you lost money on, on like a Solana. An index will alleviate that. That's where it's going. sooner SEC can approve that, the better. Yeah. What I'm getting uh, from our conversation is that I am way too much in the trees. Apparently. No, no. See, uh, that's, <laughs> I'm but, living see, under the trees, baby. I, but that's why I need guys like you. Okay, I'll let you mm. dig, let you dig, and then I just kind of back away to my forest, partly because it's maybe it's intellectual inability to dig into the trees like you. I don't deny that. <laughs> I get to a point like, okay, I'm in bullish Bitcoin. I don't need to hear anything that's more bullish. It's just going to distort my I'm already too bullish as it is. Um, mm. um, so, no, I appreciate it. I need to listen to guys like you. For me, I just pull back and say, okay, uh, maybe I, you know, right now, like I, won't, I don't even care about ags because it trade's done. I mean, it trade for the years mm -hmm. done. I, the, the trade even in, in energy and in, is, is, in metals is basically done. It's all about, for a guy who looks at the full market, it's all about cryptos at the moment. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, 
everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at this bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it from my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software it syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Aave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. Yeah. Well, speaking of the full market, uh, I actually do want to zoom out for a little second um, and get your thoughts on some more macro level stuff. Specifically, I want to talk to you about commodities. Uh, I love the way that you write about commodities. Uh, As we talked about before we hopped on here, I do have a small background in this and I like to talk about it whenever I can uh, to sound smarter than I am. Uh, (laughs) But I do want to get your your thoughts uh, in general on, you know, two, 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 uh, assets I've heard the super cycle about, right? It's going to be a Bitcoin super cycle. It's going to be a commodity super cycle. Talk to me about just what are your views, I guess, on inflation um, in general um, and how that impacts your view on a potential commodities super cycle. This hope for a commodity super cycle was a great narrative when the market was at its lows in 2020 and it's doubled since then. And the rule in commodities is um, higher prices are the cure. And it's clearly the right. case more so than ever. So I see WTI right now at $80 a barrel, 83 I see the the month the price uh, a year out and the forward curve and backwardation at seventy two dollars. I believe that curve, partly because the market's price for supply is going to come back. And as of today, the biggest headline today was, which will be a little bit later, was Hertz buying a hundred thousand Teslas. Where is that going? So now we have what's the big difference with commodities is elasticity supply. So I look at the best measure of this, and all the economists in history will tell you are the grains. I used to own a farm. And this year, that's one sector we got right. Prices went up, supply came back. Because prices went up, because U.S. farmers can make a lot of profits, prices go down. Look at lumber. It was up 120% in the year. Now it's down. The big difference is there is no supply elasticity in Bitcoin, and now you don't have it in Ethereum. Price go up, more supply cannot come back on except from existing sellers. So I will make a prediction. I fully expect WTI crude oil at $80 on on the screen now to trade closer to 50 in the next year or two. Why? That's the average price. That's current price right now is almost 
well, it's 2.5 times above the U.S. sale cost of production. So everybody's talking about ESG, but I'm a former, you know, farm owner. And when you got land and you can got oil underneath it, or you can produce crops and you can make a lot of money, you're going to do that. And it's just a matter of time. So they can hedge forward, bring on supply, and this is a key thing that happens in crude oil. We're going to use less. We use less of it. And we can create more of it with technology. That happened in the grains this year. It's gold's being replaced, and it's basically commodities. The lesson I learned in commodities is sell high, and they're high. They were low a year ago, and I'd like good luck with that one. But I look forward, and I see a super cycle in, in, in Bitcoin. I can see it going up a lot higher. I mean, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's some pie, high in the pie in the sky levels that I thought were crazy a few years ago. And now I'm like, yeah does make sense it could easily get to the market cap of gold. It does make sense to me. But then I look at yeah. crude oil, and I, I drive an electric car. I've had it for seven years. It's awesome. The whole world's going that way, and elasticity supply will crush all commodity rallies in the long term. It's just a question of getting through the short term. Well, I really like the, the cure for high prices is high prices, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you, you hear a lot, especially in uh, the Bitcoin community, you know, uh, that there's just going to be a supply bottleneck and there's going to be no other option other than to FOMO in and buy and the price is going to go like this. And, you know, people talk about that in a lot of in commodities in general, I've noticed in, in Bitcoin and the Bitcoin community. So a lot of the times it doesn't actually play out like that. Sometimes yeah. it does, but sometimes it doesn't. Um, reason being, I think in commodities, people actually need to use commodities, right? They're not just an object of financial speculation. So there's tremendous pressure yeah. when commodities become very expensive to make them unexpensive, right? Sometimes that deals with, that's like people bringing more supply online. Um, sometimes it's creating claims, right? So like gold, this is a problem and I mean a problem depending on how you view it in gold, right? There are a lot of paper claims for gold, which uh, is a hotly debated thing. I don't really fully understand it, but basically uh, it does create more supply than really exists of gold and it kind of tampers down the price in general. In Bitcoin, I actually think it's a little bit more complicated. I think this is why the Bitcoiners, one of the reasons the Bitcoiners hate altcoins. Uh, in a way, hmm. altcoins uh, are, you know, one demand for holding uh, Bitcoin is uh, you really believe that it's a hedge against inflation, store of value, etc. Another reason that you might hold is because you think it's going to go up a lot. So altcoins, in a way, dilute the value, uh, dilute the supply of Bitcoin by satisfying that other demand or reason why people might own Bitcoin. I think that's a pretty good reason, explanation for why Bitcoiners don't love the altcoiners. What would you say to that, um, Dynam? I mean, do you think about that? But uh, yeah, what would you say to those two explanations, I guess? Well, the first thing is I think um, Bitcoin maximists, um, when they just, they, they were open their minds and encouraged enough to learn about Bitcoin, then they close it to everything else and everything in the future. So that's kind of strange. But I look at it as um, Bitcoin is becoming global digital collateral it's a matter of time i think it's going to be part of when you want to buy a house or something that they're going to see how many bitcoin you own. it's it's on that the trajectory is clearly going that way what stops it um el salvador has adopted it's just a matter of time i had a colleague from brazil and they're talking about accepting bitcoin she said hey we have to protect our we have melting ice cube you think you got it bad in the states we have melting ice cubes in brazil with our currency but the, i think the key thing to remember is um, what's the trajectory where we are in the stage and people claim um, well you know it's 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 not there yet. I think Bitcoin volatility will decline, its acceptance will increase, and it'll get to a higher plateau and it'll settle and it'll be that inflation hedge. It's getting there is where we are now. It's only been around a little, realistically a decade. I mean, in early days don't really matter when it's trading totally. less than a buck. Um, so the big picture, I think, is as a commodity guy, um, 
I just look at it here, simplistic of what's happened. Supply is going down by code. I understand that my son's a, a software um, engineer. I understand you can't alter that code. So boom, I get that. All that matters is demand. Demand's clearly going up. And I just, key things that really kicked in the last few weeks were Bank of America and JP Morgan put out research reports that were positive. I mean, that was unheard of a couple of years ago. And just today, yeah. MasterCard's all over and Visa's all over. They get the fact they don't want to be blockbustered. And to me, that's what's happening. It's in that stage where it stops. I don't know. If you're not involved, you're at greater risk. But you can't put all your eggs in one basket. Great. I guess I hear that's a great way to, to, to get wealthy. But once you do get wealthy, you diversify. But I look at it as... I look at an index. I'm not smart enough to pick out the winner. And this year is a good example. It's like, you know, Bitcoin's up 100%. That's good. It's kind of a sissy year for a year after having. Typically, last year was up 15. Last time it was up 15x. So I'm expecting 4x this year. That's just being conservative. But Ethereum did that. And if you're not diversified, if you're picking just one, that's just speculation. True investors, properly managed investors with senior people they have to re, you know respond to running real money for institutions will always focus on indexing and bitcoins is the biggest one i agree can i offer uh two possible explanations for maximalism yes, please. before we move so imagine just hypothetically you'd been paying attention deeply to bitcoin since 2009 what lessons would you have involuntarily learned you would have learned yeah. in my opinion that Bitcoin goes up, Bitcoin goes down, but it continues to move higher and altcoins fail. You would have seen it happen like four different times. Yeah. It would be really hard to not learn the lesson that Bitcoin is the only legitimate thing that's going to stick around. So that makes it really hard when eventually that lesson becomes wrong. You've got to unlearn a lesson that you deeply learned at a cellular level. I think that to me is the best explanation for maximalism. I think that explains gold bugs in general too. Um, and yeah, that's my that's my pet theory for it. Now, one I, what I want to end on here in terms of commodities is you had a really interesting observation about China and their role in commodity prices in general. That's kind of at the forefront of what a lot of people are thinking about from a macro perspective these days. So, talk a little bit about the role of of China, uh, kind of what's going on over there, and how that might how that ties into your view of what's going on in commodities. First, start with the conclusion. I think China's in a secular decline. GDP, they're cutting their RR rate, all the above. I thought this years ago, and now I'm just getting more and more um, confirmation of that. And they've been the biggest demand pull source for boosting up um, commodities, most notably the last 20 years when they joined the um, the really the World Trade Organization and all that. So me, to me, they're in a decline. Banning cryptos is going to plunge them, um, their GDP. It's going to push them back to the dark ages. And a lot of us went back and dug into our Chinese history and maybe back to the Ming Dynasty and back where they always have. They just go back in close. And now they have a what I view as a, a paranoid dictator leader who's trying to consolidate power and not thinking of the best what's for the future in the country. Um, and then they have this system that's proving, they're proving now it's not going to work in the modern world, that they can't accept their citizens buying and, and accepting and transacting, like you said, cryptos. And I think it was one of the biggest mistakes in the Chinese Communist Party history, and it might lead to the end of the Chinese Communist Party. So here's the end game. They're... Um, either going to cave and then say, okay, you can mm. hold Bitcoin and cryptos. What does that mean? That's massively bullish. Or they're going to stay the same 
and keep continuing to trickle down. Continue. Why do they steal intellectual property? Because they have to. <laughs> they don't have a system to create their own. They don't have venture capital and Ivy League. And they make what we have in this country, people criticize. That's a wonderful thing about this country. We criticize ourselves so much, we make ourselves better. China, you can't criticize. I, I mean, I've heard from my Chinese colleagues in Hong Kong. Their tone, tone has really changed. My Hong Kong colleagues, they can't. They just, why well, take the risk? So to me, they're in secular decline, the best of that taking, you know, 1 billion people out of poverty that they put in poverty and bringing them to maybe, what is it, $10,000 average um, per capita GDP, good for you, but you're the ones who push them down. And now they're pushing them back is over. They built up their infrastructure and now they're pushing back on what you see as the bumps in copper and aluminum and um, and they, they, it's just over, I think. That massive buildup we saw that really peaked in 2011, um, sure, we got to the old high in, in commodities, but I'm like, yeah, good luck with that one. And that's why I narrowed down to if you're bullish commodities, stick with metals and have some um, Bitcoin in that space because crude oil, not going to need it anymore. It's going the way of whale oil. I mean, from a farm. I used to own a farm. I've not really lived on it, but I've owned it. Hmm. We owned it and, in Indiana. And, you know, 40% of <laughs> of the corn crop now goes to ethanol. Yet total consumption of, li- of unleaded gas in this country is the same as it was 20 years ago. It's around 9 million barrels a day. Where is that going? It's all going EV, going down. China's gra- grabbing on EVs. They're not going to use as much petroleum. They need copper, but you know we just put. You know, there's elasticity supply. So China's in decline. Commodities are, I think, are very near a peak. And if you're looking for a super cycle, go to Bitcoin. Yep. I would agree. You know, uh, one thing that the U.S. doesn't do super well is we don't uh, pay attention to what's going on in the world. And I think if you're only looking at the U.S. market uh, to understand what's going on, you're missing a huge piece of it. Uh, And maybe we can end on this uh, overall, really zooming out here, but just talking about inflation versus deflation in general. It's a very important, this very debated topic in finance in general. Um, And one of the most pro-inflation arguments that I've heard uh, is essentially we've, you know, one of the big ways that we've kept that's caused deflation for the last 30 or so years is this trend of um, globalization, right? And we've essentially outsourced our labor pool, right, to China, which is a super low-cost labor pool. That relationship might be going away in general. Um, You know, I got to be honest. Sometimes, you know, I used to take at face value a lot of the people I heard talk about inflation. You know, they say it's definitely going to happen, blah, blah. And then, you know, you dig deeper into it and it's like, what are the models you guys are using? And you know what? The, the, most, the most honest explanation of what causes inflation that I've heard comes from Stephanie Kelton. And yeah. it's just, we don't know what causes it. <laughs> we don't know what causes it. And you know what? That's at least for me a step in the right direction yeah. because we're acknowledging that, you know, when you're talking about the financial system, you're talking about a complex adaptive system and we just don't know what causes it. And I don't know. That's my rant about it. But I'd be curious to get your thoughts on what, you know, where you think we're headed. How important is it to get that directionally right? You know, how does it impact you and your, in your work at Bloomberg, I guess? Deflation is a predominant force. We've had a blip in the trend. And I like to use the narrative that if you're bullish commodities, you're bearish innovation. Now, my editors didn't like that. I get called English problems. You know, I'm from the South Side. That makes sense to me, you know, of Chicago. Um, it's kind of funny, but so first of all, from a commodity standpoint, if WTI was going to, first of all, let's look at a crude oil, the world's most significant commodity and where I know best. It's the same price as September 2007. If mm. we were to catch up to CPI, it'd be $110 a barrel and we should have unleaded gas, you know, at the pump over five bucks. Right now it's below, it's three and change. 
That's deflationary. Why? Because of innovation. And then I look over. So first, the commodities are deflationary assets because of human innovation. The only reason that's really been able to come up is we have the amount of dollars they're priced in is the supply that's off the chart. Despite that, they're down. That's massively deflationary. Human innovation. Don't ever uh, underestimate in commodities. And then when I speak of the big picture, I have to revert to people you, some of you knows, know well, and that's Jeff Booth, who wrote The uh, Price mm -hmm. of Tomorrow. I think you've had him on your program. If not, you yeah. should. Yeah, so I go to Jeff and say, he's right. Um, I just l look at rapidly advancing technology, overwhelming the space. Look at Uber did. I mean, I, I, I ride an electric bike to and from the office anymore. I wouldn't have done that, you know, in hot Miami weather, but electric bike's great. I don't work up a sweat that much. It's just the technology is overwhelming and all these bump up in prices all going to be replaced by artificial intelligence and um and robots it's a matter of time so let's look at inflation how we measure it next year i think crude oil is going to be at 50 dollars a barrel if it's at 80 that's a pretty significant statement there's going to be massive inflation and profits of commodity producers which means more supply which means deflation so imagine we measure crude oil next year it's at 50 bucks what does that mean pretty significant deflation. I see the U.S. Treasury long bond where I started in the business, and I'll end on this um, on podcast. I started in a Treasury bond pit in 1988 in the Chicago Board of Trade. It was the biggest trading pit on earth. Poof, it's all electronic. There were thousands of people in that trading pit. Put pit. They're yep. gone. I go through the uh, Whitestone Bridge. I used to go into uh, the LaGuardia Airport. Poof, those toll booths, gone. They're just mm. replaced by technology. To me, that's where it's going. Crude oil is probably going to head lower. And if we get inflation, inflation is because of mass uh, currency, um, you know, currency debasement. I see the long bond at two nine, two oh nine at the screen, heading towards one. It's not profound at all. It's one percent, but because there's still a glut of savings. I mean, the, the government just threw money at us, and a lot of people are locking yep. those up in savings. And it's been a trend for 40 years. So I like to look at it as that's what got me promoted from the trading pits to New York in 1993 by properly calling the bond market. I was just bullish prices bear, uh, and bearish yields. And I still I don't see a good reason to change that. Why? Because I think after we get through this COVID period, uh, we're going to see that it's just accelerated these deflationary trends. So I'll leave you this. One thing that's happened in energy, energy is down because of more supply and a lack of demand. And we're all switching to decarbonization, electrification, and then digitalization. But now we have price incentive. We haven't had that for five, six years, price incentive to accelerate electrification, decarbonization. So I'm like, good luck with the inflation. Um, I'll buy long bonds on dips. And it's been working for 40 years, so I'm an idiot. But hey, they, they went negative in Europe. They went, first of all, they went negative in Japan. I was trading them then back in the 90s. Negative in Europe. Why aren't we going to follow? All we need is one little stock bear market, which maybe will happen someday, and we're going to see pretty good inflation, unfortunately. Yeah, it's you know it's really tough to call bottoms and stuff like that. And one guy, uh, Dan Tapiero, who I, I love yeah. to listen to on macro stuff, yeah. his whole thing is uh, macro events they just take longer to play out than everybody thinks they're going to. And uh, you know, I, I like I, I come at this from maybe beginner's mind, right? I have no background in finance, but you know, people hold this uh, the zero lower bound as something sacred, and the U.S. would never cross that, and our politicians say we're never going to cross that, and the central bankers say we're never going to cross that. Doesn't seem like there's a good reason to me why we wouldn't just cross it, you know, <laughs> because uh, we've basically crossed everything before that. So I don't know. 
But uh, Mike, this has been a ton of fun. We got I, you know, this was a good interview because I had a bunch of questions written down that I didn't even get to. Uh, so we'll have to have you back on at some point soon. Uh, like I said, I got to up the amount of mics that we get on this program. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, there's a checkbox there too. But this has been a ton of fun. Uh, if folks want to find out more about you, the work you do at Bloomberg, get more information on you, follow you. What's the best way to do it? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm mostly more LinkedIn. It's more professional. So I'm happy to add people to my distribution list. Just shoot me a, a message. And I want to thank you for having me, and thank you, Michael, for what you do. Is this the coolest thing about this space? Particularly those who are uh, those of us who are addicted to listening and learning 24/7. Is you educate and you help make the world a better place. So thank you for that. I really appreciate that too. All right, thanks, Mike. We'll see you soon. 